Scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 4. If you want to grab a black Bible in your pew, you can turn to page 4 or follow along on the screen. Genesis chapter 4, I'll read verses 16 through 26, and then I'm also going to read um, from chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you have given us your word, and we thank you that it shows us more of who you are, and we pray that you would help us now. Give us eyes to see who you are and who we are, and we pray that you would meet us where we are, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, my name is John Trapp, one of the pastors here at Christ the King. That was Clay Holland, um, another one of our pastors leading worship. Really glad to have all of you here with us today. One of the things that if, if you've been coming to Christ the King for a while, you've heard me say quite a few times is that here at this church, we believe that we have a great need for a savior. 
And yet we also believe that the Bible teaches us that there is a great savior for our need. And today I think we're, we're really going to, to drill down and hopefully see this great need that we have for a savior. I, I wanna frame this by telling you first though about my dog, okay? So when I was in the fifth grade, I think I did what most fifth graders do and read Where the Red Fern Grows and it devastated me, but also it made me want a hound dog. And so I asked for a dog for uh, my birthday and my parents didn't get me a coon dog, they got me a miniature dachshund. But I was happy you know, to get a dog nonetheless and named him Stretch. And Stretch uh, didn't really like me, I'm gonna be honest. He, he kind of tolerated me as his owner, but Stretch had one love, food. Stretch loved food. And just to illustrate, he was, Stretch was a portly little guy, very, very fat. In fact, when a sweet little old lady from our church ran over him in her 77 Lincoln Town car, he survived because the vet said he was encased with fat that cushioned the blow. He'd never seen anything like it. In fact, he was so fat that they had to give him a liposuction before they sewed him back together because his skin had been so tightly wrapped around his body. That stretch, okay? So one day I'm hanging out at the house watching TV and I had been eating Oreos and I'm in like the leather chair watching, I put the Oreos on the side table and get up, I think maybe just go grab a glass of milk or something from the kitchen. And while I'm away, this little sausage dog turned into like American Ninja Warrior and jumps on the ottoman, makes this big jump across to the leather chair, jumps up onto the side table and just starts wolfing down Oreos. By the time I got back to my little dog, he had just knocked out like a sleeve of Oreos. And I went to go pick up this dog that I loved and that I cared for and he just turned on me just snarling and snapping at me as I try to take these cookies from him, which kids, you probably know, chocolate, not good for dogs. He's eating poison. And yet he's snapping and snarling over wanting it. And I tell you, I want you to have that picture in your head because I think that's a picture of us. That we actually crave what kills us. And in fact, we can snap and snarl and harm others to get what we crave, even though it kills us. That's what we see pictured here in Genesis 4 and 6. We we, we get a picture of what sin does. Sin tells you to take from it, but then it actually takes from you. You ever felt that? This thing that tells you to take from it and then you take from it and it actually takes from you. Maybe you, you know, one, one like really easy way to see that is on the night after, the morning after a, a night of heavy drinking. When you've taken, when you've taken and, you know, delight is, is at your hands and yet you wake up the next morning and it's taken from you. It's taken from you with a hangover, but also maybe even the relational fallout that comes from that. It takes from you, even though it promises to give. 
Sometimes it's not the morning after. Sometimes it's sin leads us down a long road before it ultimately takes back from you. In fact, that is sin's goal. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where uh, an uncle, kind of head demon, it's a fictitious story, this uncle named Screwtape is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, advising him about how to tempt people, how to lead people to hell. And he writes this to Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Sin is telling you, it's telling us to take from it and find life, but its ultimate goal is to take your very soul and body. So, two things I want you to see today. Two-point sermon. Doesn't mean it's gonna be that much shorter, but two points. First, how we are taken with taking. And then second, it's a surprise, so you'll keep listening. Second point's a surprise. First, how we are taken with taking. Well, we see in Genesis 4 this picture of a downward spiral of sin and, and there is a family nature to it, that, that sin has this way of being passed from one generation to the next. And, and we see this first with Eve's sin. She is taken when she takes. Genesis 3 tells us that she looks and she sees that the tree is good for food and she takes of it. And Adam takes from Eve. They take this fruit that is not meant to be theirs. And then Eve names her son Cain, which literally means to acquire or to possess, to take. Perhaps theologians think she, she named him this, thinking that this is the one who's finally going to, to take things back, to make things right again. So that this hope that Cain's going to take things back, but all that Cain does, we saw in Genesis 4, is he takes the life of his brother Abel. And then things continue to spiral until we get to verse 19 of Genesis 4 where we see this man named Lamech who's come from Cain and Lamech is a taker. Literally, it says Lamech took two wives. We see for the very first time somebody perverting the institution of marriage. And I, I want you to know that all throughout the Bible while there is polygamy in the Bible, it's never commended. In the book of Genesis, we see that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and yet people begin taking more wives. And all throughout the Bible, wherever there is polygamy, it is always accompanied with ruin, with dissension, and with unhappiness. And yet Lamech, he's not sad about it at all. In fact, he's boasting. Lamech is a man who is boastful. We see in verses 23 and 24, he's boasting about his unjust, over-the-top violence. He says in verse 23, I've killed a young man for striking me. That could also be translated a boy for striking me. A boy struck me, and you know what I did? I killed him. If you think Cain's revenge is bad, mine's way worse than his. He's boasting in his sin. Cain took the brother of his life the life of his brother, and now Lamech is boasting of all the lives he has taken. 
And what we see is that sin is taking us on a ride. It's taking us on this downward spiral of generational sin. And that culminates in Genesis 6, which I'm not going to lie, Genesis 6 has got some kind of weird theological rabbit trails. I'm not going to go down all of them right now, okay? So, sorry, we can talk afterwards if you want to. But, like, I, I, I do think that, that they're important um, elements to Genesis 6, though, for us seeing how, how sin is taking us on this ride in our taking. So, in verse 2 of Genesis 6, we see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And this is a picture of these sons of God taking women without their consent, taking as many women as they want without their consent for their wives. Now, theologians and commentators that I've read on on this, they're kind of a little bit all over the map. And these are all, you know, Jesus-following, Bible-believing Christian theologians who aren't really sure about, like, who are the sons of God? And a couple of the different theories are that may, maybe the sons of God are fallen angels, they're demons, because that language is used to describe sons of God in other parts of the Bible. So maybe, maybe there, there's this intermingling between demons and mankind. Uh, but, but also, sons of God is also used to, to, to describe in other parts of the Bible just um, kings, royalty, and the people would describe themselves as that, as that way, particularly tyrants, they would claim that they were divine. And so perhaps these are tyrannical, powerful men calling themselves sons of God, taking women. Or Bruce Waltke, um, who's a commentator that I've used a lot for this uh, sermon series, I, I like his take on it, which is to, to kind of combine the two and to say that it, it's very likely that these are tyrannical men and that they are being influenced or possessed by demons. That there is demonic evil activity happening in the lives of these men who are taking these women. And as they do so, we see in verse four that their children, their children are called the Nephilim, which again, if you think that these are like half angel, half human kids, that's like, that's a theological rabbit trail, right? Like, what is that? The Nephilim. But what I think that we're meant to see really in verse four is the way that the Nephilim are described. They're described as these these mighty men, these warriors. And here's the point. What's being shown is that taking looks really powerful. You take what you want, you get these mighty men, and they look powerful, undefeatable. And yet, what we find is that they are not. This taking, though, looks so powerful. It it looks like the kind of taking that Nietzsche talks about, that might makes right. Whoever is the most powerful can do whatever they want. And in many ways, that's the way that that, that our culture views the world. But we see in Genesis 6 that this brings horror and bloodshed on the earth. And I don't want it to be lost on us that the last straw with God is the mistreatment of vulnerable women. It is that last straw that stirs him to wrath. And in verse three of Genesis six, God says, 
man's days shall be 120 years. And again, there's questions about this. Is, is God saying he's gonna shorten the lifespan of humanity to not exceed 120 years? Or is God saying in 120 years, I'm going to pour out my wrath on the earth via the flood? And it really doesn't matter where you land on that. What matters is that God is going to do something about this. He is going to do something about the evil that is filling his world. Because it's not just a few people. It's not just the sons of God. It's not just the Nephilim. We get this big, important statement that really shapes a lot of how we understand humanity. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what we call total depravity, the total depravity of man. And, and I want to be clear for a second to point out that this isn't saying that we are utterly depraved. In other words, that, um, that human beings are, are only filling the earth with bad things. Because again, Genesis is giving us a balanced anthropology. One of the reasons I wanted to read from Genesis 4 with like all those weird names, did y'all hear all those weird names I read? That was fun. That's why I read it. I didn't want to make one of y'all read it, all right? But one of the things that you see in Genesis 4 is that even though Cain is this taker and sinner, that there's still good that comes out of his life. He builds the first city and God is pro-city all throughout the Bible. In fact, the, heaven, the new heavens and new earth is described as a city at the end of the Bible. And not only that, but Cain's ancestors are contributing to culture. Jubal is the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Tubal Cain is the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. We see that Cain's ancestors have this common grace that God has given to them. Not saving grace, but they have a common grace and that God is in his good and loving kindness withholding how evil they could become and is actually through them bringing good things into the world. And that's an important thing for us as a church. You may not believe in it, but as a church, we believe that total depravity is a thing. And yet we also see that the Bible is teaching us that people who don't believe in God can bring like really good and beautiful things into the world. And that should be celebrated and appreciated. But what we see is in total depravity that human sin is total in its scope. Every single one of us is a sinner and left to ourselves, we sin all the time. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually because we are like Cain. We're like Lamech. We are takers. Have you thought about how you're a taker? If we did an honest assessment of our lives, I think that we would actually see taking everywhere. I think we would see it in the workplace, the ways that we take from our customers or clients. Do you absentmindedly even take from your employer with the time that you spend on the phone or on the internet when you're in the office? Or instead, are we thinking about all we, we could give to our employers or give to our customers? Or do we take? What about even just like the simple act of making plans with somebody, making plans with your family? Are you inflexible 
when it comes to making plans with your family? Does everybody have to bend their schedule to your preferences, to your schedule, to your kid's schedule, because you're not willing to give anything, you're taking it all, and everyone has to bend to you? What about in conflict? Are you unwilling to be the first to give an apology? Will you only move towards reconciliation after you've taken someone else's admission of wrongdoing? Perhaps you're at Christ's King and you haven't yet married and you're thinking about the kind of spouse that you're looking for. It's really easy to put on the lens of taking when you think about who you're going to marry. To think about what can I, like, what can I get out of them? Are they successful? Are they attractive? Will they make my life better? How do they make me feel? There was, I referenced this a while ago, but there was a recent UVA study at the University of Virginia um, asking men, what, what are you looking for in a woman? And the number one answer was compatibility. And the reason that most men said this is they were looking for someone compatible because they didn't want to have to change. If they were compatible, I don't have to change. How convenient, right? Good luck. But like, what is the subtext of that? I don't want to give anything up because this relationship is about what I get. What if instead of the taking lens, when you're thinking about a possible spouse, you put on the giving lens? Is this somebody who I want to give myself to? Is this somebody that I can trust with the gift of my life? In fact, after you ask yourself that question, some of the superficial matters fade a little bit. Is this somebody that I can trust with the gift of my life? It's, it's one of the reasons, Christians, why, why you should give your life to another believer. A believer who is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You wanna trust your life, the gift of your life, with somebody who is gentle and self-controlled and patient and becoming peaceful and becoming loving and faithful. Dads, how do we think about our free time? Do we think about our free time like we're takers? Are we always scheming how to get out of the house and take time for ourselves? Or are we scheming how we can romantically pursue our wives and give to them? Or how we can disciple our kids and care for them? Somebody told me this this week, it's kind of been haunting me. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds kind of true. They said, you spend 80% of the time you'll ever spend with your children by the age of 12. The entire time you'll ever spend with your kids, you spend 80% of it by, by the age of 12. So are, are parents of young kids, are you being, and parents of old kids, don't despair, I guess. Uh, <laughs> praying for you. But like, parents of younger kids, are you, are you giving of yourself to disciple your kids? Moms, do you find yourself growing bitter for all the ways that you do have to give of yourself? Does your self-sacrifice make you feel justified in wanting things a very particular way when it comes to your kids or your husbands? Or do you consider it a joy to give of yourself in the same way that our Lord Jesus gave of himself for the flourishing of others? Retirees, do you feel like you've done all the giving you need to do and like now it's time for you to rest? Now it's time for you to get a little getting and taking. Are you, are you just looking to take all the comfort you can get before you die, get all the good vacations, all the good meals, all the luxurious living situations? Or are you thinking about the ways that you can leverage the wisdom that you have and even the financial stability that you may have 
to bless others, to give of yourself while you have the ability to do so. Kids, are you takers? Are you scheming who gets the front seat after this sermon? Or who gets the remote control or the iPad? And what you can take for yourself? Like real question, this was maybe a little more pertinent in the first service, but some of y'all go to the first service sometimes. Kids, how many donuts do you try to score at Christ the King? I know there's some threes and fours out there, right? I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just asking you, like, the, what do you think the point of those donuts are? They're not just for you to get as many as you can. They're meant as a gift for us to bless one another and to enjoy. And that's a small example of how we treat the church. Like it's for us and for our, our own enjoyment. So I, I wanna talk to, to the church goers for a second, the church members particularly. I remember uh, one of my seminary professors, Sinclair Ferguson, was talking in one of our classes and he was talking about the way that consumerism has kind of infused itself into uh, the Western church. And he said it was really about 50 years ago that people started deciding if they would go to church or not by answering this question, did I get anything out of it? That's a taker question. What am I taking from this place? Does it have the children's ministry that I want? Does it have the worship style that I want? Can I get my preferred spot in the preschool? Can I get married here and use the sanctuary? Can I get, 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 what can I take? What I would hold out to you, and I'm speaking specifically to Christians here. I, I, I hope, I want, and I want eventually all of y'all to be Christians, but I, like, I hope that there's people who feel welcome to be here who aren't Christians. I'm talking specifically to Christians right now, okay? You need a community that you can give yourself to. You need that. And I'm not just saying that because I like want all of y'all to join Christ the King if you've like been coming here for a while. Like, I'm, I'm dead serious when I say this. Like, there are, there are lots of good churches, Jesus-proclaiming, gospel-believing churches in this city. Go and give yourself to one of them. It could be Christ the King. It could be Christ Evangelical Press right down the road. It could be Advent Press. It could be Seven Mile Road. It could be Grace Bible Church. There are so, I could go on and on. There are so many good churches in this city and we should rejoice for that but we also need to give of our lives to one of them there is not a christian in the new testament who is not a member of a church it's just not it doesn't exist it's a unicorn they do not exist you need to give of yourself so i want us to see now the surprise Oh wait, I have a great quote. I just want to read this. This is back to my other point. Uh, this is from an author named uh, Laura Wilbert. She says, we all wanted to be used by God, but none of us wanted to fold up the chairs afterwards. I just love that quote. Anyway, um, the surprise. So there's all this taking by Lamech. There's all this taking by Cain, by the sons of God, and they look really powerful. But what is surprising is that the ones who look so mighty, so undefeatable, are actually the ones who are headed towards disaster. They are headed towards a surprise. And the reason that God is going to do something, the reason that God is going to do something about this taking is because taking is anti-God. Remember what all we've learned about God in the book of Genesis so far? That God, he has everything that he needs. 
He doesn't need to take anything from us. He is infinite, immortal, unchangeable, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is in community with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that God doesn't need anything from us. And so his creation is an overflowing gift of his delight to us. He welcomes us to know him and it's a gift. Remember we said from Alexander Schmemann, this wonderful quote that I love, all that exists is God's gift to man and it all exists to make God known to man. It's a gift. And so God is deeply offended by the way that we take his gifts and use them to wound or to disadvantage or to violate others. And I, and I can't preach a sermon called being taken with taking and not reference the movie Taken, okay? So some of y'all probably knew I was going there. But if, you don't, if you're not unfamiliar with it, um, Liam Neeson, I think he's some kind of like government assassin situation. I don't know, he's, he's a bad dude. You don't wanna mess with him. And his daughter goes to Europe on a vacation and she is abducted by human traffickers. And as she's being abducted, she drops her phone and one of the abductors picks up the phone and Liam Neeson says these words to him. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. And that's pretty much the rest of the movie. <laughs> but uh, I want you to see that those are the words, those are the words of a compassionate, a zealously compassionate father who is going to do something about the way that the one he loves is being violated. And that is a glimmer of who God is. He is going to do something about all of our taking. He has to. He has to because he's good. God is absolutely going to do something about the way his creation and his image bearers are being violated. He will judge it. And the same is true though. I mean, that's good news and also scary news because we are both ones who are sometimes violated but also do the violating. We participate in it. And God is going to do something about it. We see that in verse six. I mean, verse six is a, is a poignant verse that is filled with mystery and also beauty. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, that's a mysterious verse. And I, I love Eugene Peterson's definition of mystery. Mystery is not the absence of meaning, it's the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And there's a lot of meaning in that verse. It, what, it, what it doesn't mean, because we can see throughout the rest of the scripture, is that God somehow didn't know this was gonna happen. And, and now he's, he's regretting that he did this because this has gone like a certain way that I didn't think it was gonna go. God, God knew it was gonna happen, and, Yet because God is all-knowing, because he knows the future, his regrets are different from ours because we don't know the future and we don't know how things will work out. 
But what I want you to see is that this passage is communicating to us, not that like God did something and now he wishes that he hadn't, but that God is deeply affected by our sin. He is deeply affected in his heart, it says, by our sin. That word grief comes from the same Hebrew root word describing the painful toil that will be caused by Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3. And it's communicating that God is deeply sorrowful and pained over our sin. And so he's going to act on it. And in verse seven, we see what he intends to do. He says, I will blot out from the face of the land all of mankind. But before he does, we see the real surprise. This is the real surprise. Verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you keep reading verse nine, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now you can read that and say, okay, hold up. I thought that like Genesis 6, 5 just said every inclination of thoughts of man's hearts, only evil continually. It says every man, so like is Noah in there? But like now it's saying Noah's righteous. Like which one is it? And we have to, again, read through the lens of scripture. And even, we don't even have to leave the book of Genesis to get this. A few chapters later, the author of Genesis tells us how we become righteous. In Genesis 15, it says this, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It is the grace of God through faith. It is grace It is God's grace that Noah is considered righteous. It says Noah found favor in God's eyes. If you were walking out of the the sanctuary and you saw $10 on the ground, you wouldn't pick it up and say, I earned this. You found it. Noah found favor. He found, again, that Hebrew word favor could be translated grace. He found grace a gift he didn't deserve. And throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, we see that we are saved by grace through faith, by trusting in the one who is the giver, the giver of grace. Grace is a gift we don't deserve and he gives it. He doesn't take from you. He doesn't say, you know what? I'll take some like good deeds and then I'll give it to you. Mm -mm. He's the giver. And so the only way that we get salvation from his wrath is to simply take from him. See, he doesn't want us to stop taking. He wants to redirect your taking. A, a pastor friend of mine was telling me about someone in, um, in his congregation and this man is, um, has been struggling with obesity for a while and he decided like, you know, part, as, as my part of my Christian walk to steward my body. I'm going to try to move towards health. And so he began eating differently, exercising differently, um, lost a good bit of weight and was getting more healthy. And they were talking about it. And he said this interesting thing to uh, my pastor friend. He said, you know what? What's funny is my nutritionist told me that I needed to start eating more to lose weight. He's like, what do you mean? He said, well, I'd, I'd been eating all this junk. And what he told me was not to like stop eating, but to start eating something that's good for you, something that's good. Eat more of the good. 
And look, if I got up here and was like, hey, we're all taken and we just need to stop it. Stop that taking, stop sinning. Like, good luck with that, right? We were, we were made to take. But what we were made to take is from the giver. We were made to take something better. His grace, his goodness, his life. And the way that he ultimately demonstrates this is that, that Jesus, Jesus is actually taken for our sake. Jesus is taken to the cross. Jesus is taken by, by people who will do no justice to him. Jesus is taken by them. His very life is taken. And he takes our sin upon himself and he brings it into the grave and buries it with his body and raises to new life. And what he offers anyone, anyone who would come to him is the gift. He offers the gift of grace and salvation Not to someone who'll come and earn it, but to anyone who would come and simply receive it from him. That's the good news of the gospel. And friends, what that means that we get to do in our life, Christian, what that means you get to do with your life is you experience the grace of Jesus and then you express and extend that grace that you've received to others. It changes our hearts when we see the gift that God's given us, the way that our sin grieves him. We don't want to grieve the one who's given us salvation. That's what begins to change our lives from being a taker. That's what begins motivating us to begin living like him, to begin participating in his gift to the world. And so we give of ourselves. We give of our very lives, of our very bodies. Jesus says, anyone who'd come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Give of yourself. Not to earn salvation. Give of yourself because you have it. So let's do that for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of our good and giving Father. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are just, you are merciful. And we thank you that you have swept us into that mystery and that you have welcomed us into salvation. And I pray that you would give that you would give us the gift of faith. I pray that you would give the gift of faith to any who can hear my voice right now. Lord, that you would work in our hearts and cause us to follow you and to become more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.